Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Tuesday, January 10. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Iowa GOP vows more conservative policies. That is a Des Moines Bureau story. We'll get back to that if we have time. Meanwhile, in local news, farmers win the right to repair their own John Deere tractors. This is an AP story from Illinois. A long-standing battle between farmers and Deere and company is being resolved. The equipment manufacturer, based in the Quad Cities, and the American Farm Bureau Federation have signed a Memorandum of Understanding that ensures farmers and ranchers have the right to repair their own John Deere farm equipment and not take their broken tractors and other implements to an authorized dealer instead. Farmers say the requirement can unduly delay their operations, particularly during spring planting and fall harvesting and drive up costs. The memorandum, signed Sunday at the Federation's convention in San Juan, Puerto Rico, follows several years of discussions between the two sides. The agreement addresses a long-running issue for farmers and ranchers when it comes to accessing tools, information, and resources, while protecting John Deere's intellectual property rights and ensuring equipment safety, said Farm Federation President Zippy Duvall. A piece of equipment is a major investment. Farmers must have the freedom to choose where equipment is repaired or to repair it themselves to help control costs, he said. The agreement commits Deere to ensuring farmers and independent repair facilities have access to many of the tools and software needed to keep the equipment running, Duval said. David Gilmore, Senior Vice President for Farm and Turf Sales and Marketing for Deere, said the agreement reaffirms the company's long-standing commitment to ensure our customers have the diagnostic tools and information they need to make many repairs of their machines. Deere commits to engaging with farmers and dealers to resolve issues when they arise and agrees to meet with the Farm Bureau Federation at least twice per year to evaluate progress, the agreement said. The agreement formalizes farmers' access to diagnostic and repair codes and to operator, parts, and service manuals and product guides. It also ensures farmers will be able to purchase diagnostic tools directly from Deere and receive assistance from the manufacturer when ordering parts and products. Chad Hurt, an economist at the Iowa State University, said he sees the Memorandum of Understanding as a first step between the two sides. This represents an ongoing negotiation, Hart said, noting the agreement calls for the two to talk every six months. They expect fully they're going to have to make adjustments along the way, he said. Multiple class action complaints were filed against Deere, alleging the company has monopolized the repair service market with onboard computers called engine control units, of which the software and tools necessary to fix are inaccessible to farmers and non-deer repair shops. Right-to-repair policies would give independent dealers and deer's competition access to parts, software, and information that would let them repair deer equipment. According to a report by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group Education Fund in March of 2022, if all dealerships and mechanics took advantage of the policies, the number of repair options in Illinois, Deere's home state, would at least double. 
Deer, which employs nearly 76,000 workers worldwide, reported over $44 billion in net sales and revenue in 2021. So on the front page, this story by Elijah Desius, lawyer says Hamburg Inn closure is only temporary. Managers at the Hamburg Inn Number 2 told customers and reporters that the iconic restaurant would close over the weekend, and it did, though an attorney for the owner says not permanently. The on-again, off-again closure of the restaurant, a landmark that has drawn politicians including Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, has been a continuing saga since last month. Its local management initially told the Gazette on December 30 the restaurant would close indefinitely starting Sunday due to difficulty in getting touch with the owner who lives in Taiwan. At that time, management said that the Northside neighborhood building needed repairs that could not be made due to lack of resources available. Subsequently, however, an attorney for owner Michael Lee refuted that, telling the Gazette the restaurant would remain open but with limited hours through the next few weeks to repair the roof and other parts of the building. But it did close after all. In a statement, the lawyer said the closure is just temporary and that it would reopen February 1st after physical and spiritual repairs. We know you deeply care about Hamburg Inn, our collective treasure in downtown Iowa City and a proud historical landmark the statement said. Michael Lee and his professional service staff are looking forward to moving past this situation and reopening this iconic restaurant with uplifting spirit and renewed energy. The statement from attorney Kim Bauer also notes that the December 30 payroll checks to staff may not have been given to employees by the management amid a shift from direct deposit to paper paychecks. The owner is working with the restaurant's accountants to determine who has not yet been paid, she said. Employees who have not received their December 30 pay were encouraged to contact management by email. Effective last Thursday, the restaurant is also under newly hired management. Li, a native of China and a University of Iowa graduate, purchased the restaurant at 204 North Lynn Street from Dave Panther in 2016. I love it so much, I don't want to change anything, Lee told the Gazette in 2016. Lee said he had stopped in at the Hamburg Inn Number 2 a few months before for breakfast and simply fell in love with the place. Panther was already looking to sell the restaurant. Panther's family had owned the restaurant since 1948. It first opened in 1935. Also on the front page today, supervisors remove funding to hire new coordinator. This story by Gage Miskaman. Three months ago, the Lynn County supervisors voted to use American Rescue Plan Act funding to create a new resiliency coordinator position. On Monday, the supervisors changed course, voting to keep the federal pandemic relief money with the Sustainability Department, but restricting it being used to hire a new employee. The proposal passed two to one, with Supervisor Ben Rogers voting against the changes. The funding, $363,389, was to go toward the Sustainability Department to fund operations and the hiring of a resiliency coordinator for three years. The vote was unanimously approved by the supervisors in October, 
After the first three years, the county intended to fund the new position from its general fund. The goal of the Sustainability Department is to address climate change and environmental sustainability. In December, the supervisors adopted the Lynn County Internal Sustainability Plan. Sustainability Director Tamara Marcus, who started work with the county in 2020, said that while her position is more about working with the county and its departments, a resiliency coordinator would be externally focused. The new position was recommended by the Community Resilience Project's final report last summer. When the funding for the position was approved by the supervisors in the fall, the board included Louis Zumbach, a Republican, and Rogers, and former supervisor Stacy Walker, both Democrats. Walker did not seek re-election in November, and Democrat Kristen Running Marquardt was elected to the board. Many community members showed up at the Monday work session after Zumbach added the proposed funding change to the meeting agenda last week. All who spoke during the public comment opposed removing the funding. They said they were concerned or troubled with the unprecedented move to undo action of a previous board one week into a new board's term. When you go back on a decision made by a body and with a timeline as ours have suggested, it does feel conspicuous and creates a lack of trust in our government. Cedar Rapids resident Angelina Ramirez said during public comment, it makes it difficult to trust the government I live under. We need this position, and what concerns me is that if we remove the ARPA funding, there needs to be a clear path forward to fund it. Cedar Rapids resident Jonathan Hefner said, the funds are already available at no cost to local taxpayers, and this decision undermines the board's predecessor. Some members of the public, as well as Rogers, accused Zumbach of waiting until former Supervisor Walker left the board to put it back on the agenda. You've almost voted against sustainability 100% at every request, Rogers said to Zumbach during the meeting. We did all of this in good faith, in public. You've waited 90 days since we took this vote. You should have brought it back immediately. I have to think you were waiting for Stacy to leave and waiting for Kirsten's final week. Zumbach said he put the item on the agenda to reconsider because he doesn't want ARPA funding to be used to hire personnel. He told the Gazette on Friday that in the course of doing things too fast, he had missed it and it slid by him. I went to several staff members to go about how this happens, Zumbach said. Yes, it could have been brought forward faster. I didn't know we had a job description already, to be honest with you. I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not scooping money from any plan or giving it anywhere else. I'm simply saying one-time money should not go toward ongoing expenses. Running Marquardt voted with Zumbach on the motion to remove funding for the position. She made the amendment to keep funding within the department. Funding something this important, this critical for our community, out of one-time funding is bad precedent, Running Marquardt said. We will fix this messiness. Getting an unprecedented amount to run the program is the better solution. And I didn't ask for this to come before us, but if we're going to have a fix, I'd rather have a Kirsten Running Marquardt fix to set up success for the long term. My priority in the coming weeks will be to fund the offer for the position. County Finance Director Don Gindrich 
said that this is a challenging budget year because some flexibility has been removed by the state's property tax rollbacks, and the county has new expenses for radio towers and emergency sirens. She said there will be budget challenges to fund the resiliency position without ARPA money. With all of this, I don't expect the offer pot to be very big this year. It would see, it would surprise me, Jindrich said. I don't feel especially optimistic about the general fund budget, but if they, the supervisors, want to support this position out of that, it would have to be a top priority. Turning now to page two on the Iowa Today page from Iowa City, names released of two people killed in a 15 vehicle crash near Iowa City. The two people who died in a 15-vehicle pileup outside Iowa City Sunday morning have been identified as Junior Caballero Vernero of Houston, Texas, and David Mosinski of Wilton. Vernero, age 37, was a passenger in a semi-trailer truck, and Mosinski, 57, was the driver of a pickup. Eight other people were taken to a hospital with injuries resulting from the crash, according to Trooper Robert Conrad, an Iowa State Patrol public resource officer. The crash, which involved nine semis and six other vehicles, happened at about 5.40 a.m. Sunday on westbound Interstate 80 at the exit for Highway 1 into Iowa City. Iowa State Patrol said the area was fully covered in ice at the time of the crash. Even though the crash still is under investigation, we know that several drivers lost control of their vehicles and collided into each other. As this very unfortunate chain of events transpired, two people lost their lives and several others were injured, Conrad said in a statement. This crash demonstrates the importance of all drivers paying attention every single minute to road conditions and potential hazards ahead. Also in Iowa Today News, Cedar Rapids Police, a driver fatally shot on Kirkwood Boulevard on Sunday evening. A driver was shot and killed Sunday while on Kirkwood Boulevard Southwest, according to a public safety news release from the city of Cedar Rapids. At 7.22 p.m., officers responded to a report of an individual being shot in the 5500 block of Kirkwood Boulevard Southwest. Police found a vehicle off the roadway with an unresponsive male driver who appeared to have gunshot wounds, according to the release. The driver was transported to a hospital where he was pronounced deceased. On Monday morning, police confirmed the identity of the shooting victim as 22-year-old Mohammed Tofik of Cedar Rapids. In 2019, two people were killed by gunfire and two were injured while sitting in an SUV outside the Iowa smoke shop about one block away from Sunday's incident. Through a plea agreement, Andre Richardson pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of second-degree murder for those fatal shootings. And this story by Vanessa Miller, Regents Review University President Performance. Iowa's Board of Regents will conduct mid-year performance reviews today of their university presidents, who over the last year have faced a range of high-profile issues and challenges, like the transition from pandemic-era restrictions, free speech on campus, and hundreds of millions of dollars in new facilities and upgrades. Regents will do the evaluations in private because each president requested that, according to the board. 
citing a portion of Iowa Code allowing closed session reviews only if those being evaluated ask for it. In addition to evaluating University of Iowa President Barbara Wilson, Iowa State University President Wendy Winterstein, and University of Northern Iowa President Mark Nook, the board will evaluate its executive director, Mark Braun. The mid-year reviews won't bring compensation or contract changes, as that typically happens during annual evaluations in the summer. Last June, both Wilson and Winterstein received an 8.3% raise for the 2023 budget year, bringing their base compensation from $600 to $650,000. Nook's pay held steady at $357,110, although he, like Wilson and Winterstein, received a new deferred compensation deal that will pay him hundreds of thousands more if he stays several years. For the 2022 budget year that ended June 30, Wilson received salary payments totaling $597,348, just under her $600,000 base rate, as she started her presidency two weeks into the budget year. Winterstein, according to new state salary data, saw her pay top $618,000 above the base rate, as it includes extra pay and other forms of compensation. Braun, given a complex salary matrix the board uses to skirt a state law, capping the position's salary at $154,300, was paid $390,336 in the last budget year, records show. Since administrators last sat for a review in June, the campuses have increased tuition and welcomed to campus fewer students than in years past. The three campuses combined for a total enrollment of 68,933 in the fall. That's down 8% from the 75,030 in pre-pandemic 2019. This year's enrollment was 14% below a peak of 80,068 in the fall of 2015. Looking at each campus, only the UI saw a slight enrollment uptick this fall from last, although it remained below pre-pandemic levels. And this Des Moines Register story, a parent cyber attack hits public schools in Des Moines. Classes canceled today. Des Moines Public Schools has canceled all classes today after officials took the district's internet and network offline Monday morning, following what they described as unusual activity that was later determined to be an apparent cybersecurity attack. The district issued an announcement Monday afternoon saying offices will be open, but staff may be working remotely and services limited. Athletics and activities are scheduled to take place, the district said. On Monday morning, the district was alerted to a cybersecurity incident on its technology network. As a preemptive measure, the school district's internet and network services were taken offline for investigation and assessment. Because many technology tools that support both classroom learning as well as the management and operation of the school district are not available at this time, the prudent decision is to close the district for the day, the statement said. At this time, the matter is being investigated by our IT staff and consultants, said Phil Reeder, Des Moines School spokesperson. Access to the Internet, Wi-Fi, and various networked systems at school buildings and district offices 
will be either offline or intermittent throughout the day. Des Moines Public Schools is just one of a number of Iowa schools and organizations that have dealt with cybersecurity attacks in recent years, including Des Moines Area Community College in 2021. Recent ransomware attacks on Iowa schools include those in 2022 that hit the Cedar Rapids Community School District, the Linmar Community School District, and the Davenport Community School. In July of 2019, Glenwood Community School District in Mills County was forced to pay $10,000 in ransom after hackers encrypted student data that included schedules, contact, and demographic information, making it inaccessible to administrators. Monday's outage caused issue for Des Moines schools' teachers who rely on online teaching materials. Lack of Internet impacts teaching and learning at a high level, in a way that it hasn't, maybe historically, said Josh Brown, Des Moines Education Association president. But our classrooms rely more and more on technology that is Internet-based or connected to our network in some way. The district has over 30,000 students and nearly 5,000 teachers and staff in 60 schools. Also in Iowa Today News, and I'll abbreviate this article in the interest of time, this story by Isabella Zaluska, meet the seven finalists seeking to fill a vacant seat on the Iowa City Council. The Iowa City Council is preparing to appoint its newest member today, and council members have narrowed the pool of applicants to seven finalists. The seven finalists are Andrew Dunn, Na Lee, Mary Masher, Sean McRoberts, Elizabeth Miglin, Joshua Moe, and Mandy Remington. The council will fill the vacancy at a special formal meeting at 4 p.m. today. During the public meeting, finalists may make an oral presentation about their interest in the job. The council voted unanimously in November to fill the vacancy by appointment instead of holding a special election. The appointee will succeed Janice Weiner, who resigned after being elected a state senator to represent District 45. One year is left on the four-year at-large council term, which runs through January 2nd of 2024. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial is a reprint from Saturday's Washington Post. One person deserves praise in Speaker Chaos. The person who deserves a standing ovation after last week's House Speaker Chaos is Clerk Cheryl Johnson. The University of Iowa graduate has been the calm presence at the front of the House chamber, keeping order with a gavel, a poker face, and a lot of dignity. Without a speaker in place, she was temporarily in charge. There was no rule book for the role in which she found herself. In fact, there are no rules at all for the House until a new speaker takes over. The reason proceedings weren't dysfunctional is largely because of Johnson's ability to command respect and even admiration from Republicans and Democrats alike, asking rowdy representatives to refrain from engaging in personalities toward other members-elect. Watching Johnson in action, along with reading clerks Susan Cole and Tylese Alley, who have called out all 435 representatives' names over and over again, was a reminder that democracy relies not just on elected officials, but also on dedicated and largely apolitical civil servants. They kept order, 
They kept the House moving, even when the Republican majority appeared ungovernable. They did their jobs in a neutral way, showing no favor for any candidate. They didn't even show emotion, as disgraced former President Donald Trump received a vote for Speaker. Rarely does the name of a House clerk become well-known, but Johnson, who has been in the role since 2019, has a special place in history. She's the second African-American clerk, the person who hand-carried the articles of impeachment against Trump to the Senate twice, and for a time, an interim House leader. She has rightly received bipartisan praise this week and even some lighthearted calls for her to become Speaker. Her conduct is a model for all. Let's hope she inspires young people who might be watching to realize that there are ways to serve the country that didn't or that don't involve shouting. And our guest column today by Nicholas Johnson is titled, Cut Out the Tax Cut Talk. To borrow from the who's who concluding lines in a song, meet the new year, same as the old year. It's not that our joys and sorrows balance doesn't leave a lot to be thankful for, compared with most of the world's people, but we still have more serious challenges than we can surmount, most beyond their best-if-solved-by dates. So why am I limiting myself to just one? It's like, why did French men kiss women's hands? Because you have to start somewhere. I'm starting with taxes. Politicians, including some Iowa officeholders, use tax cuts as a sure election winner and cover-up for opposing a program. But letting re-election and taxes trump public needs is like cutting into the front of the line at the checkout counter. As they say in Rochester, hold the mayo, let's take another look at this. The initial relevant issues are, number one, what kind of lives do we want for ourselves and our fellow homo sapiens in our families, communities, states, nation, and world? Number two, given those goals, what programs will be most helpful and efficient in reaching them? And number three, for each of those programs, what is the most effective and economical way of providing them? Only after reaching consensus on the answers to those questions need we address the administrative details, including funding sources. Look around. There are many. The philanthropy of individuals and institutions totals $500 billion annually. There are 2 million nonprofits. A quarter of Americans volunteer an average of 50 hours a year. A $184 billion value for free. Two-thirds of us help our neighbors. Most churches have helping programs. Public-spirited corporations contribute money, participate in community programs, provide training and health care for employees. And yes, there are occasions, or excuse me, there will be occasions when a tax-funded government program or assistance is the most economical and effective source. But do we need to begin with what do we want and what's the best way to get it? By now, you're thinking of a version of that question for the Lone Ranger. Who's this we you've been talking about, Nick? Ah, you got me. Yes, I was including you, as well as, sadly, the much larger population of millions who have never read this column. How do we go from a column to a coordinated national movement? For it is the coordination that is most difficult, 
There are already numerous organizations, institutes, foundations, think tanks, academic centers, government units, and journalists working on slices. Healthcare, housing, nutrition, mental health, climate change, transportation, education, international relations and trade, and more. What we need is a single source with a website that provides links to the best proposals in each category. An organization that will promote universities and other institutions' multiple ongoing discussions like the Gazette's annual Iowa Ideas. Finally, we need more emphasis on experiential high school civics beyond reading, discussion, and exams. Also, organizations that give their members the experience of achieving desirable change opposed by the powerful. How's that for a New Year's resolution? Nicholas Johnson is a dreamer, but he's not the only one. And that's the guest column by Nicholas Johnson. One community letter for today is titled, Fund Trust Without Messing With Lost, and that's L-O-S-T, all in capital letters. The Gazette reported last week the trust to support statewide water quality and outdoor recreation hasn't been funded since it was approved by voters in 2010. I believe I've read an article about this subject every year over the last 12 years. Our representatives in Des Moines seem to be saying Iowa voters shouldn't get what they voted for. We politicians know better what Iowa citizens need, so we aren't going to fund the trust. Actually, Iowa voters don't know what they're doing when they continue to elect representatives who go against the majority of Iowa voters. The article mentioned an idea to eliminate all local option sales taxes, that's L-O-S-T, in the state. The lost would be replaced with an additional one-cent statewide sales tax. The state will take three-eighths out of that one-cent to fund the trust. I have no idea how much more the remaining five-eighths will be reduced before it finds its way back to local communities, if it ever does. Local communities that have voted and approved local sales tax options have a better idea of their needs than the folks under the Golden Dome. Why don't our representatives figure out how much they need to fund the trust and add that to the sales tax? I might have oversimplified the solution. The answer to why is because they need to be able to play games with the tax revenue. Fund the trust. Keep your hands off local option sales tax money. And that's signed by Stephen Carfrey of Cedar Rapids. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, January 10th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries, beginning with the short notices. First from Monticello, Robert Scott Faust, age 61, died Saturday, January 7th, Kramer Funeral Home. In Olwine, Agnes A. Parkinson, 86, died Monday, January 9, Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home. In Vinton, Deborah J. Nugent, 55, died Friday, January 6th, Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. In West Union, Cynthia Peters Bierman, 70, died Friday, December 30th, Burnham Wood Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. 
Also in West Union, Ernest John Johnson, 86, died Sunday, January 8th. Again, Burnham Wood Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. And from Eastman, Wisconsin, Pasita, known as Pat Fritch, age 80, died Tuesday, January 3. Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Cedar Rapids, Mary Ann Koenig, age 75, passed away January 6th at the Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha following a short illness. As per Mary's wishes, no funeral services will be held. A celebration of her life will be at a later date. The family wishes to thank everyone who has offered support, particularly Becky Picard and her family, and all the doctors and nurses at Mercy Hospital Intensive Care. Memorials in Mary Ann's name should be directed to the Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. From Cedar Rapids, Susan K. Leonard, age 80, passed away at the Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha, Sunday, January 8th. A memorial graveside service will be held at a later date. Memorials may be made in her name to the American Cancer Society. The family wishes to thank the entire staff at the Oldorf Hospice House for their love and support. Cedar Memorial is in charge of her arrangements. In Cedar Rapids, William, known as Bill Falloon Stewart, age 97, passed away January 1st at the Oldorf Hospice House, surrounded by family. Bill had an extended family in the U.S. and was adored by friends and relatives. His Irish brogue and the sparkle in his eye while reciting yeats or rhymes will be missed by all. A celebration of life will be scheduled later this spring. In Iowa City, Margaret Claire Clancy. Memorial Mass for her will be on January 14th at St. Mary's Catholic Church at 10 a.m., followed by visitation in the church lower level until 12.30. Donations can be made in the name of Marge Clancy to Pure Vision Arts and the Friends of the Senior Center at Iowa City. Online condolences and memories can be shared at lensingfuneral.com. And lastly, from Richland, Shelley Jo Armstrong passed away January 5 at the age of 61 at home with her loving husband holding her in his arms. Shelley was preceded in death by her mom and dad. Visitation with the family present will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday at Life Church. That's located at 2205 2nd Street in Coralville. The funeral service will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 14th at the church. Reverend Brian Swafford officiating and a luncheon immediately following. Committal services will be at 3 p.m. at Sharon Hill Cemetery at the corner of J Avenue and 6th Street in Kelowna. Elliott Chapel, New London, is assisting the family. Online condolences may be left at elliottfuneralchapel.com. Turning now to the sports page, this boys basketball story by Jeff Johnson. Top teams remain the same in second Iowa poll. The second official Iowa High School Athletic Association boys basketball rankings look a lot like the first, at least at the top. Your number one teams are exactly the same as they were in the first poll. 
Waukee Northwest in Class 4A, Cedar Rapids Xavier in Class 3A, Central Lion in Class 2A, and Grandview Christian in 1A. Xavier is off to the school's best start at 9-0, and coming off a thrilling victory this past Friday night at Iowa City West, in which Aiden Yamokoski hit a game-winning shot at the buzzer. The Saints have games this week at Dubuque-Wallard and at home against Iowa City High, which scored with 10 seconds left to beat West in another thriller Sunday afternoon at Coralville's Extreme Arena. Williamsburg at 6-1 and one is the area's other representative in the 3A poll. The 6th-ranked Raiders are coming off a buzzer-beating win of their own this past Friday night over Mount Vernon. Williamsburg's lone loss was at Xavier in the season opener, 66-50. to The top four in 4A remain the same in Northwest, 10-0, Cedar Rapids-Kennedy, 8-0, Waukee, 9-1, and Ankeny Centennial, 7-2. Kennedy is beating opponents by an average of 37.5 points per game. Northwest beat Waukee by two in early December, while Centennial's two losses are to Waukee and Northwest. The Mississippi Valley Conference sees the two other top 10 teams in the class in number 8, Dubuque Senior, at 9-0, and number 10, Waterloo West, 8-1. The Wayhawks, or Wahawks, recently had a loss to Waterloo East reversed because East used an ineligible player in the game. Grandview Christian at 9-0 and North Lynn at 10-0 met in last year's 1A state championship game and remain a strong 1-2 in the latest rankings. GVC has beaten three 4A schools in in Des Moines East, Des Moines North, and Des Moines Roosevelt. North Lynn has surpassed the 100-point mark three times this season and has hit 95 in another game. The Lynx have games scheduled in late January and early February against 6th-ranked Dunkerton with a record of 10-0 and number 10 Bellevue-Marquette, 11-0. North Lynn's closest game was a two-point win over Tri-Rivers Conference mate Albernette and the Pirates enter the poll this week at 7th in Class 2A. Alburnett at 9-1 and one moved up a class this season. Central Lion at 7-0, Applington Parkersburg at 9-0, and, and Roland Story remained at the top three positions in the class, with MFL Marmac at 10-0 staying at number 10. The IHSAA is sponsoring rankings for the first time this season, This week's entire poll can be found on page 4B with another coming next week. Schools are listed with their season record and previous ranking in parentheses. Turning now to the community page, here are some things to do today. In the educational category, Girls in STEM Workshop, Penny Shine. This event is for girls in 4th to 8th grade. Our young chemical engineers will investigate the best tools and chemicals to successfully clean a dirty penny. That takes place at the Ely Public Library from 5 to 6 p.m. In the nutrition category, eating for balance. In this presentation by High V dietitian Nicole Johnson, learn the basics of nutrition, how this applies to what you eat and how your body uses the nutrients from food. 
That's at the Hiawatha Public Library. It is free to the community, and that is from 6 to 7 p.m. The Cedar Rapids Genealogy Library is open from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. That's at 813 First Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. That's also free, but donations are welcome. Their hours are 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. In the museum category, The Collector's Eye, the collection of Thomas C. Jackson and Joanne Stevens, a collection of prints by significant modern and contemporary artists, including John Baldessari, Enrique Chagoya, Sam Francis, Klaus Oldenburg, Wayne Thebod, and Kara Walker, that are owned by local collectors Tom Jackson and Joanne Stevens, is on display from noon to four. That's at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, and that is free to $10. And join Tom for a relaxing morning session of Tai Chi on Zoom, that's from 8 to 9 a.m. online at the Ely Public Library. Deal of the Art is the title of the article on the community page today. If you're going to spend $72 to see the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band at the Englert in Iowa City on March 15, or wandering through a concert or festive footprint in Uptown Marion, Chances are good you're also going to drop extra cash on dinner beforehand, drinks afterwards, and maybe even parking, a babysitter, a hotel room, and some shopping. Iowa City and Marion are among the cities encouraging visitors and audience members to weigh in on the economic impact of the arts. According to the Iowa Arts Council, the research conducted by surveys in Ames, Greater Cedar Falls and Waterloo, Council Bluffs, Des Moines, Davenport, Dubuque, Iowa City, Marion, Mason City, and Sioux City is Iowa's contribution to the National Arts and Economic Prosperity Study, the most in-depth art research project of its kind in the United States. Five such studies have been conducted in the past, but this is the first one going statewide in Iowa not just focusing on Des Moines. It's being organized by the nonprofit Americans for the Arts, with help from state arts agencies like the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. In a typical year, we know Iowa's creative sector contributes more than $4 billion to the state's economy and employs more than 43,000 creative workers statewide, Chris Kramer, director of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, said in a news release. This study focuses on the arts' impact at a local level and helps community leaders and residents understand how cultural anchor organizations generate tourism, support jobs, and contribute to vibrant, prosperous communities. It began in May of 2022 and will wind up this spring, with the results expected to be released in July. Participants include nonprofit performing art venues, museums, film and theater groups, cultural festivals, and historical sites. The host sites are distributing surveys after events to better understand how arts and cultural organizations contribute to growing local economies and a healthy tax base throughout event-related activities and purchases. The study also captures the same cultural organization's annual expenditures, 
the number of full-time jobs, and contributions to local government revenues. Arts and cultural events directly support the livelihood of diverse artists, creative workers, and local businesses, including hotels and restaurants that depend on cultural tourism, Iowa Arts Culture Administrator David Schmidt said. The study's most recent edition, published in 2015, revealed that the nonprofit arts and culture industry generated $166.3 billion in economic activity and supported 4.6 million jobs across the country. The Iowa portion of that study showed that in Greater Des Moines, the arts had an annual economic impact of $185 million and accounted for more than 5,600 full-time jobs. For more information about Americans for the Arts or the Arts and Economic Prosperity Study, you can go to americansforthearts.org. Again, that's americansforthearts.org. And here are the Eastern Iowa briefs for today. In Dubuque, the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium has been selected as one of the five nonprofit organizations for the first cycle of the Target Circle Partnership Program for 2023, a one-time opportunity for Target Circle members to vote for the River Museum and earn a share of a $15,000 donation from Target. We're excited and honored to have been chosen for this program, said Vicki Sutter, Director of Donor Engagement for the Museum. I am a Target Circle member, and I am happy to have saved up my votes for the River Museum. This is a great way for loyalty program members to direct where Target makes its donation, and we're grateful for this opportunity. Now, through March 31st, Target Circle members can cast their votes earned via Target purchases with a red card or the Target Circle barcode toward the nonprofit of their choice based on their set store location online. The River Museum is among the contending nonprofits for the following Target store locations that include Cedar Rapids, Coralville, and Dubuque. At the end of the voting cycle, all nonprofits will be awarded a share of $15,000. To vote, Target Circle members log on to their account either online or in the app and select the Target Circle icon in the menu. At the bottom of the menu is a Community Support tab showing the number of available votes and a link to cast your vote. In Cedar Rapids, in honor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday, also known as National Day of Service, Green, Iowa, and AmeriCorps are serving an evening meal at the willis Dady Overflow Shelter. They also are seeking volunteers to help make food, chili or dessert, or monetary donations that will go toward the purchase of items needed for the meal, like food, cups, and plates. All donations not used for the event will be donated directly to the overflow shelter. An Amazon wish list can make it easy to donate. And for more information, contact Rachel Palmer. That number is 641-799-9260. Turning now to the Business 380 page, 
This story by Isabella Zaluska, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, opening first Iowa store. A national discount retailer is opening its first Iowa location in Iowa City later this year. Ollie's Bargain Outlet, which has 467 stores in 29 states, is opening in the Iowa City Marketplace, the space formerly known as Sycamore Mall in southeast Iowa City. Ollie's Bargain Outlet is the country's largest retailer of closeout merchandise in excess inventory, according to the company's website. The store is anticipated to open late summer or early fall in the space that formerly housed Von Mauer and Lucky's Market. The Iowa City Marketplace announced the store's opening on Facebook in late December, and the post has garnered attention on social media with more than 150 comments and more than 420 shares. The Iowa City Marketplace will feel busy with the new anchor store, said Ben Hamd, founder of Brookwood Capital Advisors, which owns the shopping center. Brookwood, a Tennessee-based company that focuses on redeveloping shopping centers, bought them all last year for just under $14.3 million. Hamd said having a bigger retail bring more traffic or excuse me, having a bigger retailer brings more traffic to the shopping center and benefits other businesses in the area. Those tenants include Planet Fitness, Joanne Fabrics and Crafts, Marcus Theaters, Panera Bread, McDonald's, Mexico Lindo, and Oyama Sushi. Ham said Ollie's Bargain Outlet is similar to Big Lots, TJ Maxx, and Marshall's, which have a little bit of everything. The outlet store sells items that include housewares, electronics, home improvements, books and toys with an inventory that constantly changes. Many of the items are undersold or overstocked merchandise Ollie's buys from manufacturers. You will always find famous brand name products at Ollie's, but a lot of them could be last year's colors, patterns, or packaging that traditional retailers won't sell. Hamd estimated the store will create at least 30 jobs with the potential of employing up to 70. The store estimates it will bring in $10 million in revenue a year. That's money that will stay in Iowa City specifically, Hamd said. That's jobs that will come, good-paying jobs. It's not just hourly workers. You're working with managers and regional people. Ollie's wants to do further stores in the state of Iowa. He said Iowa City also will benefit from having the first Ollie's in Iowa. The city gets more tax revenue. People get a better price on stuff than they would elsewhere. They can shop for different options a lot easier, closer to where they live, he said. Everybody benefits when a big national retailer comes in and takes in a big empty space. Finishing up with the top weather story today, this by meteorologist Hannah Messier. Several kinds of precipitation can occur in eastern Iowa during the winter months. Snow occurs when cold air is found throughout the atmosphere, from the clouds to the ground. Freezing rain is a little more interesting. Freezing rain occurs when warm air underneath the clouds allows the snow to melt as it falls, but colder air is close to the surface. The colder air will cause the rain to freeze to ice when it hits the ground. Sleet will develop similarly to freezing rain, with warmer air underneath the clouds causing snow to melt into rain. 
However, a deep area of cold underneath the warm air causes the rain to refreeze into sleet. Looking for mostly cloudy skies in Cedar Rapids today with a high of 33 and a low of 27. Mostly cloudy and a chance of rain or snow or patchy drizzle tomorrow and Thursday with a high of 37 and 31. The normal high for today is 28 and the normal low is 11. The record high of 57 degrees was set in 1928. A record low of 24 degrees below zero was set in 1982. Sunset tonight is at 4.55 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.34 a.m. That gives us 9 hours and 21 minutes of daylight. We are in the full moon phase with moon rise at 8.31 p.m. and set at 10.24 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, January 10. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.